And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to remember a very great life. A very great life that changed our country profoundly for the better. The life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He only lived 39 years. And it's impossible to think of another American who meant so much to our country in so short a span. What was King? Who was King? And how does his life fit into his overall conception of God's will for America and the role of providence in our history? That, in fact, is the subject of this very special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show called Providence and the Prophet. That is the folk singer Joan Baez, who was at the March on Washington in August of 1963, perhaps the most famous moment in uh, King's remarkable life. Uh, she, um, She sang what became the anthem of the civil rights movement that changed America. And the question of who King was, how he wanted to be remembered, was answered by King himself a mere two months before he was murdered. He anticipated his own death and said he wanted to be remembered this way. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. He also left not just a committed life, but a, a memories of eloquence and passion. King is one of only four individuals in the entire history of this country who's ever been honored with a federal holiday. Those four, Christopher Columbus, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King. Now, if you look at them, they have one common element. They're separated by nearly 500 years of history, and they, of course, have dramatically divergent backgrounds. But the crucial bond that these four share is an unshakable sense that their lives have been shaped by a higher power to serve grand purposes. Columbus, for instance, took his first name seriously. It meant Christ-bearer. And he saw his voyages and discoveries as components of a divine mission. During the third voyage he made to the New World, he wrote, as the Lord told of it through the mouth of Isaiah, he made me the messenger, and he showed me the way. In terms of George Washington, he was a 23-year-old officer in the Virginia militia. He participated in the first major battle of the French and Indian War, He survived without injury, despite four bullets that pierced his clothing and shot two horses out from under him. And he wrote, the miraculous care of providence protected me beyond all human expectation. 
1776, he told the Reverend William Gordon that no one had a more perfect reliance on the all-wise and powerful dispensations of the Supreme Being than I have, nor thinks his aid more necessary. In Lincoln's case, of course, he had a childhood full of mournful, impoverished obscurity, but it never shook the instinctive expectation that he always maintained that he would play some significant role in God's master plan for the young nation. Orville Hickman Browning, who was an old friend of Lincoln's from his very early years in New Salem, Illinois, said that Mr. Lincoln believed that there was a predestined work for him in the world. Even in the early days, he had a strong conviction that he was born for better things than then seemed likely or even possible. On the train to Washington for his first inauguration, Lincoln stopped to address curious crowds, and he frequently alluded to his status as an unlikely tool of fate. In Indianapolis, he twice described himself as an accidental instrument. And he told the New Jersey legislature in Trenton, he'd be most happy indeed if I shall be a humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty. A hundred years later, Dr. King came to perceive his role in similar terms. After surviving numerous death threats, he got up to 40 threatening phone calls a day during the Montgomery bus boycott that he led. And after witnessing the shattered glass and ruined porch from the bombing of his own home, he recalled his numerous brushes with childhood death. Well, he mused to an old lady who was offering her blessings to him, I guess God was looking out for me even then. He must have given me a hard head just for that purpose. And he saw his sense of purpose as a minister of the gospel above all, compelled to do the Lord's work among the Lord's suffering children. He told an enraptured Memphis audience the very night before his death, somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. That anointing, of course, came naturally to Martin Luther King as the son, the grandson, and even the great-grandson of preachers in the black church. But the commanding name that today resonates so strongly with so much authority in the annals of America actually arrived for King as something of an afterthought. He was born in January of 1929 in Atlanta as Michael King. What happened is when he was five years old in 1934, his father, Michael King Sr., made a tour of Germany, and he made a pilgrimage to places that were associated with the great Martin Luther, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation. And when he came home, Reverend Michael King, who had just taken over his father-in-law's church, a church that his father-in-law, A.D. Williams, had pastored for 38 years, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, A.B. Williams, who King could not remember because he was only uh, two years old when his grandfather died, but A.B. Williams had grown that church from 13 families 
all the way to 900, becoming one of the leading black churches in the South. But um, Michael King, who had taken it over, now styled himself Martin Luther King Sr. And he wanted his little boy to bear the same name with a sense of destiny for reformation and purification of this country and this church. The difficulty was that the little boy seemed to be particularly accident-prone. The same year that his father went to Germany, he was leaning against an upstairs banister in the comfortable home that the Kings occupied at 501 Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. And all of a sudden, he's five, he plunged headfirst over it, hit the floor 20 feet below, then bounced on his head through an open door into the cellar. He got up, nothing broken, nothing scratched. Nor was anything damaged seriously, except the bicycle when a few years later a car hit his bike from behind and hurled the little boy to the sidewalk. Nor when the same thing happened again six months later, and young King flew to the ground over the handlebars. As a Jerry Talmer recalled writing about Dr. King shortly after he was murdered, death came looking early for Martin Luther King, and it kept looking through most of his 39 years to the final appointment on the balcony of a Memphis motel. But what happened during those years, those incredibly eventful years, was miraculous, astonishing, and profoundly consequential. We will cover that in this special broadcast called The Prophet and Providence, The Real Meaning of Martin Luther King. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. Hey, this is Greg Tomlin, producer at The Michael Medved Show. Just want to thank you for checking out this special program, Providence and the Prophet, The Meaning of Martin Luther King, Jr., We really put a lot of time and effort into this show, and we hope it helps better illuminate one of the towering figures of the 20th century who still speaks to us today. Check out MedvedHistoryStore.com. There's lots of other history shows up at MedvedHistoryStore.com. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be That is the very moving Oscar-winning song by John Legend from the movie Selma, the best cinematic treatment of uh, an episode in Dr. King's life. He um, was incredibly close, Dr. King, to the realities of slavery. His grandfather, the very, very influential black civil rights leader and pastor, uh, Pastor A.D. Williams, the father of his mother, Alberta King, had been born a slave. He was born in 1861. King was removed from slavery only by 64 years from the time that the 13th Amendment was passed in one of the last acts of Lincoln's life to eliminate slavery forever. So King was actually as close to 
the realities of slavery nearly as children who were born today are to King. It was not just a distant memory. And partially because the memories of the struggle and of the changes in America and of America's great unpaid debt to the people who had been enslaved, because that was such a profound part of his upbringing, there was always a feeling that he was haunted by the past, by death, by thinking about what his own life would mean. As a matter of fact, one of the stories that's told about a near brush with uh, serious injury, if not death, when he was a child, was he was playing baseball. And he was playing baseball together with his much taller, much bigger, older brother, younger brother, actually. He was bigger even though he was younger, A.D. King, Alfred Daniel King. And Martin Luther King was always a small man. He was listed as 5'7". There are some who say he may have been a tad shorter than that. But A.D. was bigger, and he was stronger, and um, they were playing ball, and um, A.D. had the bat slip out of his hand. And it hit King square on the side of the head. And he fell down, and of course, his brother was terribly worried, what have I done? And he went over and he says, he was up right away and arguing that I was out because I'd missed on a third strike. Mike's got a hard head, all right. Members of his family and friends continued to refer to him by his original name, Michael, though, of course, the world knew him with the name that his father, Daddy King, chose for himself and for his son, his oldest son, uh, that name Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr. And this idea of looking at his own life and the purpose of it and anticipating death, in 1957, in the midst of the bus boycott in Montgomery, at the very beginnings of his leadership of the civil rights movement, he um, he found one weekend that 12 sticks of dynamite had been lit and ignited in front of his home. And this is after his home had already been bombed. And it was after all of the phone calls that came in telling him he would be killed. And he actually went on to his front porch and he said to the people in Montgomery who had gathered around, who were concerned when the police came and the dynamite was taken away, he said, tell Montgomery that they can keep shooting and I'm going to stand up to them. Tell Montgomery they can keep bombing and I'm going to stand up to them. If I had to die tomorrow morning, I would die happy because I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land and it's going to be here in Montgomery. The old Montgomery is passing away. The church that he pastored in Montgomery was within sight of the original capital of the Confederacy, 
where Jefferson Davis began the Confederacy, which was in Montgomery before they moved it to Richmond. And this is all part of the story that he lived. As he was growing up, he was always an incredibly bright kid. And so much so that he won a speech contest when he was 15, and he was finished with Booker T. Washington High School, which was the only black high school in Atlanta. Of course, they had totally segregated schools. Black kids were not allowed to go to the white, more prestigious high schools in Atlanta. But his prize-winning speech is fascinating because, again, it's prophetic for a 15-year-old who's about to begin college at age 15. And at Booker T. Washington High School, he spoke about a concert that had happened five years before. Marian Anderson gave her concert at the Lincoln Memorial. And this is an amazing story where she had not been allowed. She was a great black contralto uh, who was a wonderful opera singer and a great singer of spirituals. And she had not been allowed to uh, perform at the Constitution Hall where she was scheduled to because the Daughters of the American Revolution didn't want her there. So she performed at the Lincoln Memorial. And Eleanor Roosevelt was there, and it was a very big deal. But King, in his speech, prize-winning speech, said, when the words of America, my country, tis of thee, and nobody knows the trouble I seen, rang out over that great gathering, there was a hush on the sea of uplifted faces, black and white, and a new baptism of liberty, equality, and fraternity. That was a touching tribute, but Miss Anderson may not as yet spend the night in any good hotel in America. Sounds like Martin Luther King, doesn't it, at age 15? And he was right, of course, because Marian Anderson that night had actually spent the night at the home of a former Pennsylvania governor, associate of Teddy Roosevelt, named Gifford Pinchot. The ability to speak, to persuade, to win, all may have been noted, but far less important had it not been for a fateful decision that he made in terms of taking his very first job. He went on to Morehouse College beginning at age 15. He didn't do particularly well at the beginning of his college years, uh, some say because he was too interested in young ladies. But uh, by the time he graduated, he had decided to follow his father's and grandfather's path into the ministry. And the rest is part of the story of The Prophet and Providence, special broadcast of The Medved Show. That's the incomparable voice of the great Marian Anderson, whose 1939 Easter Sunday concert in front of the Lincoln Memorial inspired the then 10-year-old Martin Luther King and led him to make his prize-winning speech five years later when he was graduating from high school at uh, age 15. He, uh, he started 
at uh, Morehouse College. Uh, ended up uh, doing very well his last years. Was valedictorian. And went on, much to his father's satisfaction, to theological seminary, Crozer Seminary in Pennsylvania. And then ended up studying for a doctorate at Boston University. And at first he was concerned about what he called the emotionalism of religious life and was not sure that he would follow his father's example, but he agreed to officially be ordained and to become associate pastor of his father's church, which had been his grandfather's church as well, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And um, King, while he was studying at Boston University, uh, met a, um, a young lady. And he was not quite certain yet that he wanted to go into the ministry, but he was um, certain about the young lady. Her name was Coretta Scott. She was studying to be a singer, like Marian Anderson, and studying at the very prestigious New England Conservatory of Music. And within an hour of their first meeting, as he was driving her back to her school, he turned to her and said, you know, you have everything I ever wanted in a woman. We ought to get married someday. Well, they were married shortly thereafter, married by his father, uh, June 18, 1953, on the lawn of the house of her father, Obadiah Scott, who was a self-made businessman who had a filling station, a grocery store, trucking, and more. And... King had finished everything at Boston University except for writing his Ph.D. He had done the full residential requirements. And he later recalled the August of 1953, after being in school for 21 years without a break, I had reached the satisfying moment of completing the residential requirements for my Ph.D. degree. The major job that remained was to write my doctoral thesis. In the meantime, I thought it would be wise to start considering a job so that I could be placed by September 1954. Two churches in the East, one in Massachusetts and one in New York, had expressed interest in calling me. Three colleges had offered me attractive and challenging posts, one a teaching post, one a deanship, and the other an administrative position. In the midst of thinking about all of these positions, I received a letter from the officers of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church of Montgomery saying they were without a pastor and they would be glad to have me preach, on a trial basis it was, when I was again in that section of the country. He was an amazing preacher, as the world was to find out, and after he spoke a few times at Dexter Avenue Church, they made an offer to him. And his father didn't think he should go there. His father, of course, wanted him to take on the family pulpit in Atlanta, but King thought that Montgomery would be a good idea. It was a prestigious church. It was a successful church with a legendary prior pastor. And so he accepted the position at the Dexter Avenue Church. And he went there with his young family. He was 26 years old. Six months after he arrived in Montgomery, there was a member of the congregation. whose name was Rosa Parks. She was a seamstress. She was active in the civil rights community in protesting for justice in Montgomery. 
And one night, she was asked to get up and give up her seat on a bus and to go stand in the back with the other, quote, colored people, while some white gentlemen came onto the bus and deserved the front seats, according to the way that things worked in Montgomery at that time. She refused to get up. She was arrested. And the Montgomery bus boycott began. And because he was so articulate, the local clergy thought it should be led by the young Dr. King, who had just arrived. Had he not gone to Montgomery, the history of the country and his own biography would have been profoundly different. We'll tell you how as we continue this special broadcast, The Prophet and Providence. Hope you're enjoying this special program, Providence and the Prophet, the Meaning of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Go to medvedhistorystore.com where we have a full catalog of history programs covering the very earliest colonial period up through the turbulent history of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Go to medvedhistorystore.com and I hope you enjoy this program. That's the uh, Freedom Singers at the March on Washington in 1963 performing another of the anthems of the uh, civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And that movement began in Montgomery. And it began partially because of one of those coincidences that truly can only be seen as providential. If Martin Luther King had gone to one of those other churches in the East or to one of the academic positions that he was considering, if he'd gone anywhere else on planet Earth other than Dexter Avenue Church in Montgomery, Alabama, the Montgomery bus boycott would not have changed the world, would not have challenged the status quo in a way that America hadn't seen before. Things were happening, finally, in the United States. Just two years before, the Supreme Court had decided Brown versus the school board of Topeka, which had declared that segregated schools were not permitted under the constitutional guarantee in the 14th Amendment of equal protection of the laws. And it was amazing that it took the court so long to make that decision. It was unanimous. But long before the schools were segregated, people began to question as did a, uh, an activist named E.D. Nixon in Montgomery before Dr. King even arrived, the whole edifice of segregation, the separate water fountains, the inability of black people to sit at lunch fountains, to ride on buses at the front of the buses. Now, the irony here was that 75% of the passengers on the Montgomery public transport system were black. When all of a sudden there is a bus boycott where those passengers say, we're going to get to work otherwise, many of them walked. Uh, King helped to organize carpools for people, where people would be riding in cars. The, they tried to actually bust the people who were giving rides to folks so they could get to work. But with all of that going on, no one expected the bus boycott to last for more than a year, for 381 days. It lasted largely because of the visionary leadership of the young new pastor in town, the 26-year-old Martin Luther King. It also transformed 
his life. As, as he reported, every single day there would be death threats. Several times there were people who drove by his home and fired shots toward it. At this point, he had a, a young baby daughter, adorable little girl, Yolanda. The death threats kept coming in, in terms like call off the boycott or die or go home, leave town, or we'll shoot you in the head. King tells a story in the book that he wrote about the Montgomery bus boycott, Strive Toward Freedom, of uh, Friday night, January 27, 1956. It was one of the most important nights in his life. The Michael Medved Show. Providence and the Prophet, the meaning of Martin Luther King. To order this show or other history shows, go to medvedhistorystore.com. to a special show providence and the prophet the meaning of martin luther king on the michael medved show king tells a story in the book that he wrote about the montgomery bus boycott strive toward freedom of uh friday night january 27th 1956 it was one of the most important nights in his life he had been out very late to one of the strategy meetings with other ministers and leaders of the bus boycott to try to keep it going, to try to force the bus company to allow people to sit wherever they wanted on a bus. It seems so fundamental. But there was tremendous resistance and passionate resistance. And very late on that Friday night, it's close to midnight, a King came home after one of those long strategy sessions and he found his wife Coretta asleep. And he paced around the house and his nerves were still on edge when the phone rang. And again, it's the middle of the night. And he heard a voice saying, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. He hung up the phone and he put on a cup of coffee, a pot of coffee on the stove. And then he sank into a chair at his kitchen table. And here's the way he wrote about that experience. In Stride Toward Freedom, King writes, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table, and I prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, King wrote, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once my fears began to go. 
my uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. Three days later, that bomb blasted his house, and his family escaped harm in, in a very close call. Strangely enough, King wrote, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. He arrived after the bomb had exploded. My religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. And he recalled the same experience, what you could call his kitchen vision, he did. Some 11 years later, he spoke before an audience, and he said, It seemed at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And this experience, King said, transformed his life. So did a Supreme Court decision. He was arrested repeatedly in Montgomery. He ended up going to jail more than 20 times in his life, sometimes incarcerated for a time period. They found an obscure Alabama law that they enforced against the leaders of the bus boycott, a law that prohibited boycotts. Uh, he was arrested for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone and taken to jail for that. But he persisted, and he became world famous when the Supreme Court decided in favor of the bus boycotters, a total victory. They had no right to deny them the ability to sit on a bus that they were paying for. More in terms of the meaning of Martin Luther King, the prophet and providence. Here's something new, brand new, with my pillow right now. Uh, my pillow, which is so great, you really do have to try it, especially when you have a 60-day, no questions asked, money-back guarantee. If you don't love it, my pillow is offering their four-pack. That's two premium pillows and two go-anywhere pillows for a full half price, 50% off. That means you can get four pillows. For what you might expect to pay for just one, go to MyPillow.com. If you're looking for a great night's sleep, now is the perfect time to get your first pillow. In fact, four MyPillows. Get them for what you'd expect to pay for one at MyPillow.com. But you've got to use the promo code MEDVED. That's MyPillow.com, promo code MEDVED, or give them a call at 800-620-3280. Be sure to use the promo code MEDVED, MyPillow.com. Martin Luther King believed in the American miracle. He believed that our country had been designated for great things by a higher power. He believed that he had been designated for great things by a higher power. And those great things didn't involve tearing down America or trashing the American past. It meant calling America to realize the highest aspects of our own covenant. 
And as a matter of fact, he spoke in those terms in June of 1961 at Lincoln University. America is essentially a dream. It is a dream of a land where men of all races, of all nationalities, and of all creeds can live together as brothers. The substance of the dream is expressed in these profound words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. And King, of course, dedicated his life to making sure that that endowment by our Creator of those inalienable rights would apply to every American. He clearly recognized the brutal injustice that existed in his own lifetime. He would have recognized the continued injustices that, uh, yes, still occur in America today. But under the flag, echoing America's great founding documents, praising the founders without mentioning that the person who wrote those words that he intoned so nobly, was a slave owner who, yes, historians think was probably involved with one of his own slaves. King spoke to what Lincoln, with whom he profoundly identified, what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, making the the case that America could do better. Montgomery and the victory in the bus boycott, and of course it was a sweeping victory, uh, made him world famous before he'd reached the age of 30. He organized, subsequently, not just the Montgomery Improvement Association, which is the organization that he headed that had been organized for the bus boycott. He organized now the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, to move across the South for equal access to lunch counters, to schools, to transportation, to public accommodations, and most of all, to the right to vote and the right to shape policy. The victories that he won are worth remembering because they are epic and they changed forever this greatest nation on God's green earth. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A new study by Pew Research uses tricky language to exaggerate differences between Trump and Biden voters when it comes to views of America's past. The report shows nearly all Biden voters, 87%, agreeing with the statement, it makes the U.S. stronger when we acknowledge the country's historical flaws. Meanwhile, nearly half of Trump voters, 47%, support the alternative view. The U.S. may not have been perfect, but focusing on its historical flaws makes the country weaker. Now, actually, reasonable people should embrace both formulations. Sure, it's healthy to acknowledge shortcomings in our history, but focusing on those flaws at the expense of all America's worthy accomplishments can be sick and destructive. The Pew survey actually indicates that conservatives and liberals agree that it's appropriate to recognize the nation's imperfections. Their only split involves a disproportionate focus on those negative elements, a damaging obsession 
of the American left at the moment.